Section 4 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Jaden Kruger. The Mysteries of London, Volume 2, by George W. Reynolds. Section 4. Chapter 140. Incidents in the Gypsy Palace. For a few moments Richard remained rooted to the spot where the returned convict had left him. He was uncertain of how to proceed. Warned by the desperate adventure which had nearly cost him his life at Twig Folly, he feared lest the present occurrence might be another scheme of the resurrection man to ensnare him. Then he reflected that the individual who had just left him had met him accidentally, and had narrated to him circumstances which had every appearance of truth. We have before said that Markham was not a coward. Far from it and he moreover experienced a lively curiosity to satisfy himself concerning the fate of an individual whose inveterate malignity had so frequently menaced not only his dearest interests, but his life. This reflection decided him, and without farther hesitation, he knocked boldly at the front door of the gypsy's palace. Some minute elapsed ere his summons appeared to have created any attention within, and he was about to repeat it, when the door slowly moved on its hinges. But to Markham's surprise, no person appeared in the obscure lobby into which the pale moon threw a fitful light. In fact, the front door was opened by the means of a simple mechanism which the porter worked in his lodge overhead. While Markham was lost in wonder at this strange circumstance, the trap was suddenly raised above, and a strong light was thrown through it into the lobby. "'Who are you?' demanded the gruff voice of the porter. "'I seek a few hours' repose and rest,' answered Markham. "'Who sent you here?' "'A person who is a friend to you.' "'Do you know what this place is?' "'Yes. It's the headquarters of the Zingaris.' "'So far, so good,' said the porter. "'Well, wait a few moments. I must see.' The trap closed. The lobby was once again involved in total darkness, and for the next ten minutes the silence of death appeared to reign within the house. At the expiration of that time in the inner door was opened, and the porter, bearing a light, appeared. "'You may enter,' he said. "'The Zingaris never refuse hospitality when it can be safely granted.' Markham crossed the threshold without hesitation." The porter closed both doors with great care. "'Follow me,' said the man. He then led the way up the stairs to the first floor, and conducted our hero into a room where there were several beds, all of which were unoccupied. "'You have your choice of the downies,' observed the porter, with a half-smile. "'And I shall leave you this light. Do you require any food?' "'None, I thank you.' "'So I should think,' said the man dryly as he surveyed Markham's appearance in a manner which seemed to express a wonder why a person in his situation of life had come thither at all. We have, however, before observed that curiosity formed but a faint feature of the gypsy's character, and, even when it existed, it was not expressed in verbal queries. Moreover, individuals in a respectable sphere not unfrequently sought in the holy land of refugee against the officers of the laws which they violated, and hence the appearance of a person had nothing to do with the fact of admission into the gypsy's establishment. Nevertheless, the porter did survey Markham in a dubious way for a moment, but when the preceding incidents of the night, or the calm tranquillity of our hero's manner, so inconsistent with the idea that he was anxious to conceal himself from the eyes of justice, excited the suspicions of the porter, it is impossible to say. But that glance of curiosity was only momentary. Averting his eyes from our hero, the porter placed the light upon the floor, wished him a good night's rest, and retired. But to the surprise and annoyance of Markham, the gypsy locked the door of the apartment. As the key turned with a grating sound, a tremor crept over Richard's frame, and he almost repented having sought the interior of an abode the character and inmates of which were almost entirely unknown to him. Indeed, 
All that he knew of either was derived from the meager information of a man, and that man had an acknowledged assassin, who had induced him to visit the place where he now found himself. "'How weak I am to yield to this sentiment of fear!' he exclaimed. "'Rather let me determine how to act.' He proceeded to examine the room in which he appeared to be a prisoner. The numerous beds seemed to indicate that he really was in a species of barrack, or lodging-house of some kind, and this circumstance— coupled with the fact that the porter who had admitted him was evidently a member of the Egyptian or Bohemian race, reassured him, for he felt convinced he was actually in the abode of gypsies. So far the stranger, who had been the means of his visit to that strange tenement, had not deceived him. But how was he to satisfy himself in regards to the resurrection man? He tried the door. It was indeed fastened. He examined the window. They were not barred, but were of a dangerous height from the backyard on which they looked. Markham paced the room, uncertain of how to act. Suddenly, his reverie was interrupted by the tread of many steps upon the stairs, and then a species of subdued bustle took place throughout the house. The whispering of voices, the removal of heavy objects overhead, the running of persons hither and thither, and the opening and shutting of doors announced that some extraordinary movement was taking place. Richard listened with breathless anxiety. At length the sounds of several heavy steps, in the landing outside of his door, met his ears, and this noise was at short intervals varied by deep groans. The groans seemed to accompany the tread of heavy steps just mentioned. These steps and those expressions of human suffering grew fainter and fainter as they descended the stairs, until at length they were no longer audible. Nevertheless, Markham kept his ear fixed to the keyhole of his chamber door. Silence now once more reigned through the house, but in a few minutes the noise and bustle seemed to have been transferred to the yard. Richard hurried to the window but the moon had gone down and the darkness without was intense. He concealed the light in a corner of the room, and then gently raised one of the windows. But he could distinguish nothing with his eyes, and the sounds that met his ears were those of footsteps bustling to and fro. At length these ceased. A door was closed at the end of the yard, and almost immediately afterwards Richard heard, in the same direction, the rumbling noise of a vehicle moving heavily away. When that din had ceased, the most profound tranquillity prevailed not only in the home, but also in its neighborhood. The silence was interrupted only for a few moments by the sonorous bell of St. Giles' Church, proclaiming the hour of three. Time wears on, said Markham impatiently, and no opportunity of satisfying myself on the one point seems to present itself. To attempt to seek repose is impossible. To pass the dull hours in suspense like this is intolerable. Then he seated himself on one of the beds, and considered what course he should pursue. Slowly, Slowly past the time, and though he revolved in his mind's many plans, he could fix upon none. At length, the clock struck four. The hour for departure will come, and I shall leave this house as full of doubt and uncertainty as when I entered it, he ejaculated, starting up. His eyes chanced to fall upon a long nail in the wall opposite to the bed from which he had just risen. A scheme which had already suggested itself to his mind now assumed a feasible aspect. He knew that the door was only locked, and not bolted and that nail seemed to promise him means of egress. He, however, first examined the candle which had been left him, and which still burned in the corner where he had concealed it. To his joy he found that there was an inch remaining. With the assurance of light for another half hour, and good courage, he said to himself, I may yet accomplish my purpose. Having extracted the nail from the wall, he proceeded to pick the lock of the room door, an operation which he successfully achieved in a few minutes. With a moment's hesitation, he issued from the room, bearing the candle in his hand. As he crossed the landing toward the staircase, which he resolved to ascend, his foot came in contact with some object. He picked it up. 
It was an old, greasy pocketbook tied loosely round with a coarse string, and as Markham raised it, a letter dropped out. Richard was in the act of replacing the document in the pocketbook, which he intended to leave upon the stairs, so as to attract the notice of inmates in the house, when the address on the outside of the letter caught his eye. The candle nearly fell away from his hand, so great was the astonishment which immediately seized upon him. The address consisted simply of the words, Anthony Titkins, but the handwriting, oh, there was no possibility of mistaking that. Marco knew it so well, and though the years had elapsed since he had last seen it, still it was familiar to him as his own, the more so as it remained unchanged in style, for it was the writing of his brother Eugene. With a hasty but trembling hand, he opened the letter, the wafer of which had already been broken. He did not hesitate to read the contents. Judging by his own frank and generous heart, he conceived that such a license was permitted between brothers. Moreover, he experienced a profound and painful anxiety to ascertain what link could connect his brother with the terrible individual to whom the letter was addressed. But all that the letter contained was this. Come to me tonight without fail, between eleven and twelve knock in the usual manner. Richard examined the handwriting with the most minute attention, and the longer he scrutinized it, the more he became confirmed in his belief that it was Eugene's. But Eugene, a patron or a colleague of the greatest miscreant that had ever disgraced human nature, was such a thing possible? The letter bore no date, no signature, and was addressed from no place. It had no postmark upon it, and it had, therefore, evidently been delivered by a private hand. Oh, thought Richard within himself. If my unhappy brother have really been the victim, the associate, or the employer of that incarnate demon, may God grant the wretches indeed no more, for the sake of Eugene. And then his curiosity to ascertain the truth relative to the alleged assassination of Tidkins became more poignant. It must be so, reckoned Markham within himself. That stranger had not deceived me. The presence of his pocketbook here is an undeniable trace of the miscreant. Oh, how much it now behooves me to convince myself that he is indeed removed from the theatre of his crimes. Subduing as much as possible from the painful emotions which that letter had suddenly excited within him, Markham secured the pocketbook about his person. For now that accident had revealed to him to whom it belonged, he did not consider himself called upon to part with an object which, in case the statement of Titkin's death should prove untrue, might contain some paper calculated to afford a clue to his haunts or proceedings. Scarcely decided in what matter to pursue his investigations in that house, and trusting more to the accident than to a settled plan to aid him in testing the truth to self-accused strangers' statements relative to Tidkins, Markham stole softly up the staircase. Arriving on the first landing to which it led, he listened attentively at the various doors to which opened from it. All was silent as death within the rooms to which these doors belonged. Not even the sound of human respiration met his ears. Could it be possible that the house was deserted? Perhaps the bustle which he had heard ere now was caused by the departure of its occupants. As this idea grew upon him, he was emboldened to try the latch of one of the doors at which he had already listened. It yielded to his hand. He pushed the door open with great caution, and entered the chamber. Not a human soul was there. He visited the other rooms upon that landing, the doors of which were all unlocked, and they were alike untenanted. There was another story above, and thither he proceeded. The first three rooms which he entered were empty, like the preceding ones, but in the fourth there were three men. They were, however, fast asleep in their beds, and Richard's visit was so noiseless that they were not in the least disturbed. 
Hastily retreating, and closing the door carefully behind him, Markham descended into the landing on which his own room opened, and where he had found the pocketbook. On that floor were four apartments, as on each of the upper flats, in addition to the porter's lodge, which, it will be remembered, was precisely over the lobby below. To avoid elaborate detail, we may state that Markham found the doors on the other three rooms, beside his own, on the first floor unlocked, and the chambers themselves were untenanted. He was about to leave the last room, when the appearance of one of the beds attracted his attention, and on a closer examination, he perceived that it was saturated with blood. Moreover, on a chair close by, there were pieces of linen rag, on which large stains of gore were scarcely dry, together with lint and bandages, unquestionable proofs that a wound had very recently been dressed in that apartment. No, the self-accuser has not deceived me, thought Markham, as he contemplated these objects. All circumstances combine to bear evidence to the proof of his assertion. Doubtless the gypsies have departed, carrying away the corpse with them. He stood gazing on the blood-dyed bed at his feet, musing in this manner, and then he thought how fearful was the fate of the miscreant, the evidences of whose death he believed to be beneath his eyes, cut off in the midst of his crimes without a moment's preparation or repentance. But suddenly he asked himself, Am I certain that he is no more? That lint to stanch the blood, those bandages to bind the wound, do they not rather bear testimony to a blow which was not fatal, but left life behind it? And yet, for what purpose could the body be removed, save for secret internment? Oh, if that man be yet alive, and if Eugene be indeed his accomplice or his patron, and Markham experienced emotions of the most intense anguish. He loved his brother with the most ardent affection, and the idea that the individual so loved could be a criminal, or the friend of criminals, was harrowing to his soul. But after all, thought Richard, his naturally upright and almost severe principles asserting their empire in his mind, after all, ought I not rejoice, if this man is to be indeed still alive, that he has survived the assassin's blow, that he is allowed leisure for repentance? My maker, who can read all hearts, knows that I am not selfish, and yet it is a principle of our feral human nature to rejoice at the fall of a deadly enemy. Oh, when I think of all the wrongs and injuries I have experienced at the hands of that man, exposures, persecutions, attempts upon my life, I cannot pray that he may live to be the scourge of others, and perhaps of my brother, as he has been of me. Unwilling to contend longer with the varied emotions which agitated his breast, Markham hurried from the room. The lower part of the house yet remained to be explored. Perhaps the body, if the resurrection man were indeed dead, had been removed to a room on the ground floor. Determined to leave no stone unturned to satisfy his doubts, Markham cautiously descended the stairs and visited the refectory rooms, one after the other. They were all empty. His candle was now waxing dim, but he saw that his search was nearly over. A flight of steps, apparently leading to the offices in the basement of the building, alone remained for him to visit. To that part of the house he descended, and found himself in a small place which had the appearance of a scullery. On one side was a massive door, secured with huge bolts, and evidently leading to a vault or a cellar. But scarcely Markham had time to cast one glance around him in the subterrain, when the candle flickered and expired. At the same moment, a hollow groan echoed through the basement. Richard started. He was in total darkness, and a momentary tremor came over him. The groan was repeated. His fears vanished, and he immediately concluded that the resurrection man, wounded and suffering, must be somewhere near. At that idea, 
All sentiments of aversion, hatred, and abhorrence, all reminiscence of injury and wrong, fled from the mind of that generous-hearted young man. He thought only that a fellow creature was in anguish and in pain, perhaps neglected, and left to die without a soul to administer consolation. Reckless of the danger which he might incur by alarming the inmates of the house, he determined upon rousing the porter in order to obtain a light. He turned from the scullery, and was rushing up the stone steps in pursuance of his humane intention, when he suddenly came in violent contact with a person who was descending the same stairs. End of section 4. Recording by Jaden Kruger.